Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 286 Humanity Gets an Upgrade. We're joined this week by technologist and author Ramez Nam to discuss his book Nexus, a science fiction thriller set in the near future when humans are linked mind to mind. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. I'm here today with Ramez Nam. Uh, Ramez, great to have you on the show. So uh, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks, Vincent. It's an honor to be here. And uh, just a little background for those of you who are not familiar with Ramez and his work. He is a professional technologist, uh, formerly worked at Microsoft on projects like IE Explorer and Outlook. And he's also now a sort of prolific author. Um, I was just reading your second book, which we're going to talk about today, Nexus. And then a couple months later, I saw another book just came out, um, The Infinite Resource, which is sort of a, your most recent book. Um, so you've had three books in the last uh, couple years or so, and all of them really interesting, exploring th- topics of, uh, on technology, uh, post-humanity. And then the, the one we're going to talk about today, Nexus, is kind of like a science fiction novel that's dealing with both with like some realistic technology stuff and then also with this really exciting action-packed and contemplative uh, sort of story. So uh, really, really interesting stuff. Well, thanks. It's been super fun and the response to Nexus uh, from Buddhists and non-Buddhists and sci-fi readers and non-sci-fi readers has been awesome. Okay, cool. And, um, you know, before we jump into to talking about the book and talking about some of the kind of interesting ideas that you bring up in the book, um, I wanted to first get a feel for your relationship or connection to the whole Buddhist enterprise. And um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about kind of how you got interested in Buddhism and uh, what, what, what kind of your relationship has been with that. Well, I discovered meditation in uh, 1997 or 98, where I was going through sort of a turbulent time, and I wanted more uh, serenity. I wanted more control over my own emotions. Uh, So I started meditating just from instructions found on the internet, on Usenet, uh, back in the day. And that led me to do a 10-day Vipassana retreat at a a Goenka-style retreat. And then I've been an on-and-off meditator since then for those 15, 16 years. And... It's really interesting because in the book, um, this is one of the first science fiction books I've seen where there's meditating monks who are using high technology. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fun juxtaposition. <laughs> okay, cool. And we'll, and we'll talk about that. But first, and I thought it'd be helpful for those that haven't read Nexus, if you could maybe share a little bit about the basic storyline. Um, it's a science fiction novel set in the kind of nearish future. But could you share a little bit about kind of what the story's about. Yeah, so the idea is that someone has created a drug called Nexus, and Nexus is something you swallow, like a silvery metallic fluid, and it's actually full of nanoparticles that go into your brain and attach to your, your neurons. 
And when they're in your brain, they can do various things. They can talk to the nexus nanoparticles in someone else's brain. Uh, and they can also interact with your brain in various ways. You can kind of learn to program and control. Uh, so it opens up all sorts of interesting avenues. But in the year 2040, this technology or this drug is completely illegal both on the grounds that it's used as a recreational drug and that it's sort of a, a what you'd call a transhuman technology, uh, something that enhances humans. And society has had all sorts of problems with misuses of biotechnology and nanotechnology. So from there, it turns into an action-packed international espionage thriller. It goes from San Francisco, where it starts, to uh, Bangkok, and then remote mountains uh, of a monastery in Thailand, with little uh, uh, side trips to Washington, D.C. and Shanghai along the way. Okay, awesome. And, you know, one of the, one of the main characters in the book, um, whose name is Cade, um, he, he's like a, I could just imagine him being in current Silicon Valley, you know, like some sort of, uh, you know, graduate st- student who's super brilliant and working on some new innovative technology. Is there a reason that you chose the Silicon Valley as a kind of a starting point for the story? You know, I think the Bay Area is in some ways the cultural capital of the United States. I mean, it's, it's where all the, the tech startups and also non-startups, the Facebooks and Twitters and so on come out of. But it's also, there's a lot of innovative things happening in the arts there. The, the Burning Man uh, community, you know, started there in the beaches of SF. So I live in Seattle, so I'm a, a couple hours by plane from SF, and I visit often. So I love that city, and I love the vibrancy of what's happening in technology and art and philosophy there. Uh, and that's why I started it off there. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, one thing I've seen you talk about, I think, uh, when you're at Google, was the actual, some of the actual technology behind Nexus. Not Not in terms of the actual technology in the book, but some of the kind of technology that maybe one day would lead to the kinds of things you write about. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the actual technology that you're exploring um, in terms of the antecedents to what you talk about in Nexus. Absolutely. There's more happening in interfacing electronics with the brain than most people realize. So about 200,000 people around the world have cochlear implants that are like hearing aids, but don't just clean up sound. They actually patch into the nervous system and send electrical impulses via the auditory nerve into the brain. The FDA in December approved the first bionic eye. It's called the Argus II. It's actually a bionic retina, so it replaces the light-sensitive cones and rods at the back of your eye and, again, sends nerve impulses straight into your brain. And now we have in the lab... People who have been paralyzed from the neck down have brain implants in their motor cortex, the part of the brain that controls motion, that let them move robot arms by thinking about it. Uh, there's mind-controlled prosthetics, like prosthetic legs and hands that are being explored. And in animals, we've gone even further. We've actually boosted animal uh, memory, boosted animal intelligence in rats and monkeys, all by putting chips uh, in the animal brain or in, in the previous cases in the human brain. Okay, so these are kind of various examples of technologies where technology and brains are actually interfacing directly. That's right. Okay. And Nexus, the, the Nexus drug you talked about is kind of like, you know, several iterations later on that kind of thing. Exactly. 
It's just a much better version that can interface with more of your brain and it doesn't require surgery. You can just uh, ingest this instead. That's the big uh, kind of waving your hand technological magic of it, actually. Okay, cool. Um, and, and some of what I found so interesting that you're sort of exploring in the book is what would it be like for people to be able to share um, not just thoughts and emotions, but just share all aspects of human consciousness and human skills in a certain way. And and there's something very interesting, questions that come up around that, around identity. You know, who am I if I'm sort of fusing my consciousness for short periods of time with these other human beings? Um, questions that often come up when people do, you know, things like hallucinogenic drugs um, or do really intensive meditation. Absolutely. Uh this notion of identity and of separateness is something that we're used to in everyday life. We think of ourselves as separate, but you know, one of the Buddhist tenets is really the, um, the dispelling of maya, of illusion and the illusion of separateness between person to person. And we all have had sort of these peak experiences at some point, whether it's under the influence of psychoactives or just in an, an incredibly loving moment or during deep meditation where you start to feel that blur and the barriers between you and someone else drop a little bit and you kind of feel more connected to them or even closer to being one with them. Uh, so that's something that I wanted to explore with this technology. It's not just a, a sci-fi shoot 'em up though it is a sci-fi shoot 'em up but it's also looking at what happens to humans as persons and as a species and as groups if we can actually connect our minds more fully to each other. Okay. Cool. And, and I really loved, you know, sort of reading a book where someone was exploring those kind of technologies and what they might be like. Um, it, there was like a scene where it seemed like a bunch of people were taking what essentially sounded like to me like ecstasy 2.0. Um, and, and, you know, having a really some amazing, profound experiences, psychologically healing experiences, spiritual experiences. And then pretty soon after that, a, a, a massive bloodbath, uh, sort of. So, what's really interesting is you 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 definitely put these two um, things side by side and don't sort of make it a utopian kind of vision um, by any means. And I, I wonder if you could talk both about that, the fact that you know you're showing the kind of promises and the perils of these technologies, and also maybe we could get into a little bit of the the kind of the the contemplative tech um, aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an optimist, and I'm an optimist about technology. I think that for the most part, technology has made our lives better, whether it's antibiotics or vaccines or cell phones or you know, the internal combustion engine or heating, all of these things, literacy, books, language, written language certainly is a technology. So all of those things have been uh, mostly positive, but they've all had their downsides. You cannot find a single technology that has not had some negative side effect as well. So I wanted to write a book that was optimistic and showed the positive things that could come out from a technology that can tap into the mind, which is really the most personal technology you could possibly have. But I didn't want to be naive about it. I felt like in order to be optimistic, to have any credibility with the reader, I had to present the real unvarnished truth, which is that technological innovations get used for bad things too. Um, and that often there's a struggle around a new technology or a new piece of science about how to control it, how to use it. So that's a lot of what I'm portraying in the book. You see 
people misusing this technology for mind control, for spying, for uh, espionage, for creating suicide bombers. And then you see Buddhist monks using it in beautiful ways. Um, so I wanted to just be a little honest that anything that gives us more power over the mind will be used for mostly good, but for some bad as well. Okay, great. And to go to kind of the, I guess you'd say the positive side of the equation for a moment, because um, this is something I haven't seen a whole lot of technologists talk about. Um, even though I know many technologists have an interest in the mind and in consciousness and even have practiced meditation or have done other kind of contemplative uh, practices, um, this whole notion of using a, a technology like Nexus uh, something that can sync together various minds and something that can sort of amplify certain aspects of mind. You know, there's a scene which you already talked about where a bunch of monks are kind of meditating together and in a monastery. And this is, you know, this is not um, a futuristic scene at all. I mean, this is a scene that you probably see in present day Thailand or present, even present day United States. Yeah. Um, a group of people sort of engaging in this kind of activity of practicing uh, and developing a certain kind of attentional skill. And the difference being is you're kind of exploring what would it be like for these different kind of monks to have their minds kind of synchronized or, or kind of communicating together, almost like a kind of collective mind or a hive mind of some sort. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like what what were you thinking when you conceived of this uh, medit collective hive mind meditation. Like, what do you think might actually be possible with some of these technologies? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And I, I think your use of collective mind and, and hive mind is, is absolutely right. Um, there's another character in the book who talks about, from a philosophical standpoint, that we're already uh, a collective species. You know, you look at different species in nature and you see, um, well, cats, big cats are less social than primates, say. Cats are kind of more solitary hunters. They do do some socialization. Dogs are much more social, much more like a pack of dogs is an organism. And we're primates. And if you look at a troop of monkeys, a troop of monkeys is not just a bunch of individuals. It is, in a way, a collective organism. And so my viewpoint is that humans, we are not just individuals. We are part of a collective or many collectives. When you're in a relationship or a family, you're part of that larger organism. It's not just two people with you and your spouse or your significant other. There's actually three entities there, you, them, and the collective. Um, and so you know, can technology deepen those connections? I think so. I think it already does in many ways. Uh, the ability to uh, communicate has always been used in part to facilitate more connection between people. And it's something that we very naturally uh, want to do. It's been used for trivial things, too. You know, use it to send random texts or to look at cats on the internet or pornography or whatever. But it's also used in ways that we may not perceive as very deep at the moment, but actually are kind of increasing mutual understanding and so on. So I just wanted to take that to the next level and say, okay, what if there was no intermediary? What if you didn't have to pick up a phone? What if you didn't have to type something on a screen or on a keyboard, but instead your mind directly could sync with the mind of another person? What would that do to what it means to be a part of a collective? And in, in showing those monks meditating together, they're really trying to at least temporarily uh, let go of their ego 
and become one, at least with all the other people who are there, which is something we do in meditation anyway, but now mediated by a technology that actually is linking their minds and their thoughts together. I guess part of what I found interesting exploring that idea is that usually we think of enlightenment or awakening in the Buddhist tradition as a kind of uh, something that happens to the individual. Um, it's like, you know, the even the story of the Buddha, it's this heroic individual who kind of went through this arduous process and then came out the other side, you know, awake. And um, what this sort of opens up is more of a kind of inquiry into what would it mean for a collective to be going through some sort of process together of a kind of awakening. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, it was one of the things that I admire at Buddhism is that it is a, um, it's an, a non-authoritarian uh, model of uh, enlightenment, I would say. You're not dependent upon the priest. It's you doing the work. But still, there's the Dharma and there's the Sangha. It's, we are still part of a collective. The Buddha wrote these things down to pass on his ideas to others. Now, others have to do the work themselves to get there, but you're still benefiting from a community, even if it's in the most trivial way of you're more likely to meditate because you have uh, a group meditation session with others, or a monastery has been built that you can go to for a retreat, or a teacher is giving you tips, or a friend is giving you tips or just encouragement. So even though people have to find enlightenment for themselves, that doesn't mean that we're totally alone in the journey. Uh, We can borrow from, leverage, take advantage of, or benefit from the wisdom and encouragement and good spirit of others. It, for me, it's a, it's a big question, um, and it's one that I'd be eager to explore myself. What would it be like to touch the mind of a more experienced meditator than your own while they were meditating? Or I'm sure that some of us have had the experience of you're meditating in a room with others meditating, and you can hear their breathing, and you fall into sync. Maybe you're all doing anapana or something like that, or even not. But you can hear their breathing, and you fall into sync. Or if you're in a meditation tradition where there's chanting involved, you're chanting with them. And it's a way to synchronize your minds. So what if we were actually directly uh, exchanging brainwaves, um, actually sending nerve impulses back and forth between minds? I think, A that will tend to increase cohesion of that group. But B, there's no reason that a thought has to be confined in a single mind. Often it's not. When we're brainstorming on something together, a thought is actually not constrained to just one of our minds. It's bouncing back and forth. But when you have that direct linkage, going beyond just language, but going to direct patching of our brains together, that thought, that consciousness, can actually be... I believe, or I'm positing in the book, greater than the consciousness of just one mind. It can be something that spans multiple minds and in some ways be larger than some of its parts. Okay, interesting. So that, that's the sort of notion of a kind of group or collective uh, mind, that it somehow becomes so cohesive that it sort of transcends in some way the individuals that are kind of partaking in it? Yes, very much so. Okay. It brings up some really interesting questions, too, because... You know, oftentimes meditation communities or spiritual communities, they're, they're, they tend to be organized around certain people who have some, you know, they have some kind of understanding that they've come to and, and certain kind of deep skill sets when it comes to the mind. 
and they are really working to kind of, uh, in a certain sense, to transmit that understanding to other people. That'd be one way of kind of uh, looking at what many teachers do. Um, so then the question is, you know, do you have one one person up at the front of the room who's transmitting their minds and everyone else is kind of synchronizing and riding the waves, you know, kind of working off of their, you know, decades of kind of uh, experience? Or how, how would you envision that happening? You know, you could. Technology allows for many things. That's not the model that I would find most appealing. Uh, and if I liken that to the Internet, uh, 1984 was the definitive novel of that was a self-defeating prophecy, I would say. Right? It was this novel that said that telecommunications can be used in a hub-and-spoke model, where the hub is doing all of the broadcasting and is monitoring everything else around it and is trying to create perfect conformity via coercive methods. Right? That's not how the Internet worked out. It worked out that, in fact, it's much more bottoms-up and yes, there are some, some cohesion-creating elements of it. And in many ways, those are, those are good. Sometimes they're bad. But there's also a lot of diversity and a lot of boosting of weak signals. People that are in uh, subcultures where they might not have been able to find a lot of people uh, in their local area now can connect more readily. And in fact, this podcast is an example of that. Right? Of course, of course. So that's my hope, is that if we when we get to brain-to-brain communication, that it is more decentralized and more bottoms-up than top-down controlled. Even if there's a teacher that has a lot to teach you, maybe you want to slip into that state of shadowing or mirroring or just receiving from them for a little while. But I don't think that's very Buddhist either. I think it still does come down to you have to have your, your individual realization and do the individual work. And in a certain sense, that's a, one of the big cruxes of the novel is who should have control of this technology? Should it be restricted? Should it be controlled top-down? Or should everyone have access to it? And there's kind of a pivotal scene. It's very low-key, but there's a scene where the, the, the Buddhist teacher and Kay, the protagonist, and the Buddhist teacher is also a neuroscience professor, which is actually happening in real life these days. But they're having a conversation that's indirectly about whether or not Cade, our protagonist, should take his improvements to Nexus. He's made it a better thing. Should he give those to everyone, or is he, should he be more careful and worried that if he does, people will hurt themselves or hurt others with it? Um, and that is the biggest ethical question of the book, actually. And I really ultimately go in for the more people who have access to this and the more bottoms-up and decentralized it is, the better it is for humanity. Okay, cool. And it's it's really interesting to think about, you know, the difference in the hub and spoke kind of top-down model and the sort of decentralized, you know, peer-to-peer model. Um there are some really big shifts happening in kind of spiritual communities and in various um religious organizations, you know, that are exploring these things as well. You know, what does it mean to um what does it mean to kind of break down some of those traditional roles and and be able to kind of uh play with various roles. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing to explore collectively and it opens up all kinds of challenging questions as well. Um, you know, in, in particular with, with the Buddhist practice, there's a question of, you know, how does someone know when they're learning something, whether or not they're deluding themselves or fooling themselves into thinking they have it already figured out without some sort of way to, to kind of do some checks and balances. Um, and you know, those are questions that I think, 
everyone listening to this podcast probably thinks about because a lot of the people who tune into this are sort of DIY uh, practitioners. Yep. It's a good question. You know, I don't think there is any answer. I think you want to tap into the knowledge of people who've gone before, whether they're a teacher that you meet in person or a friend who's been down the road for a few years more than you, or books, whether you know ancient or modern. Um, and what you'll find is, is that they're not 100% in sync. They are somewhat contradictory, because that's the nature of, of all human knowledge. Um, and you just have to work it out for yourself. You have to take from lots of different sources and figure out what really works for you. And sometimes you will be deluded. There is no such thing as a human being that has 100% perfect knowledge of anything. We can only approach that, and that's often it's a two steps forward, one step back sort of process. So a lot of it is the journey in that respect. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.